0: Hey guys, it's Dr. Molina, and I'm back with another episode of Practically Healthy by Dr. Molina, where I interview some really amazing experts, doctors, neuroscientists like today, best selling authors, athletes, celebrities. And we go over the science and their expert opinion after years of research about what you should do, what you can do and what you will do. And I'm going to give you practical ways of doing those things to make your life better. So today, I am very excited. I have a brilliant woman that I've known for, I think, nearly a decade. I think it's been a while, like before kids, BK, when we, Almost, had, a, when yep. we had a normal, when we had a life, remember? Um, yeah. <laughs> so Dr. Nicole Avina is a uh, neuroscientist, Um who trained at Princeton and is, she does a number of things, but, um, she is a real leader in the field of addiction and the brain. And so that's what I really, you know, kind of wanted to her on. I think this is so pervasive and such a great topic. So I'm really excited about jumping in to your work. So welcome, Dr. Avina. I'm going to call you Nicole, but with all the respect and you call me Melina.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. It's so always so much
0: fun to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah. Likewise. So, you know, let, let's jump right into how you got, first of all, I, uh, Neuroscience, my major was biological psychology in college at Tufts. I don't know if I told you that when we talked, but and I was fascinated by neuroscience and actually wanted to be um a neurologist, but because I thought it was so cool, like the brain pathways and different lesions causing different, you know, manifestations and you know, but the reality of being a neurologist is not quite so glamorous. So I, I uh boy, I've abandoned all these careers, soccer player, neurologist. I'm like, not that I don't even know what the hell I'm doing, but tell us a little bit about how you got into neuroscience and then how that led to, you know, really, um, going, becoming such a world expert in, in addiction and particularly sugar addiction, which I think a lot of people can relate to right now.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I had, I guess, sort of a normal path. You would say I, I, was a undergraduate student and I was uh, taking some psychology courses and I too was interested in the biological psychology component of that. And, you know, that involved learning about the brain and my um, undergrad advisor had said, well, you know, if you're interested in this stuff, maybe you should go get a PhD in it. And I thought, well, okay, I guess that's, better than getting a job like all my other friends were doing. So I've always loved school and loved to learn. So I ended up going to Princeton for my PhD and I spent really the rest of my career there. I'm still there. I'm still on the faculty. And it's interesting because when I started there, I was just really interested in learning about the brain. And I always had an interest in nutrition And that's really where this whole field of sugar addiction got started for my dissertation. My title of my dissertation is sugar addiction, an animal model of sugar addiction in the brain and really just building on all these different ideas around science and you know what we can better understand about you know whether or not sugar could be an addictive substance so we did a whole bunch of studies on it and i often tell people i'm still working on my dissertation even though i did graduate and they gave me the degree i'm still doing studies to this day on food addiction and the brain because there's just so much to learn and you were you were you, you are continue to be but you were ahead of your time
0: i mean and i, I because you know we just certainly at that time, when was it that
1: you were working on your dissertation? Oh, I hate to date myself, but it was about almost 20 years ago that we were starting to do this. And you're, you're right. I mean, you know, back then it wasn't really widely accepted. I think now more and more people, because of the research and because of all the studies that have been done are on board with the idea that, yeah, some foods can be addictive for some people. But back then, you know, we had a lot of colleagues and, you know, medical doctors who were kind of laughing at this idea because there really wasn't this whole acceptance of the idea that sugar could actually be addictive. And when
0: you say it's addictive, because I I do understand it, but just for our listeners, like what, what are the manifestations of that? Like, I mean, how, how can you, how have you proved that over time that it really is addictive, similar to what we current, you know, generally think of substance of of addiction, which is, you know, gambling or alcohol or drugs or. So what does that what does that look like from a neuroscientist standpoint?
1: So we were very, very careful to make sure that we were being very particular about how we define things, because you're right. People toss the term addiction around pretty loosely. People say, oh, I'm addicted to my phone or I'm addicted to watching this show on Netflix. And we want to be very careful about that. So what we did was we actually used the diagnostic criteria for substance use disorder that's put out by the American Psychiatric Association. And so they list criteria that need to be met in order for someone to be diagnosed as having a gambling addiction or alcohol addiction or drug addiction. And so what we basically did was we took all those criteria and we developed a bunch of experiments to test whether or not those criteria could be met when the substance of abuse is sugar. And, you know, it's taken many, many years to get to this point. But now there is a significant amount of research that supports this idea that, yes, all these diagnostic criteria can be met when the substance of abuse is sugar. Can you give us some examples? Because I think, you know, that's
0: it'd be helpful for maybe people out there who may be kind of struggling with this to understand or even different. I assume like with most things in psychology that there's kind of a spectrum of, of responses. So what kind of things are we talking about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a spectrum and there's a variety of different symptoms that could emerge. So for instance, binging, binging is a big one that we often hear about, especially when it comes to food. And that's a criteria where you just take a much larger meal than you intend, even though, you know, you maybe only want to eat a little bit or should eat a little bit, you end up finding that you need to eat, you know, the whole sleeve of Oreo cookies. And that's one of the things that a lot of times people struggle with. And with binging comes almost this, what we've referred to as a vicious cycle where someone may engage in a binge and then they deprive themselves because they feel guilty and then they go into withdrawal because their brain is so dependent on the stimulation from the food and the dopamine system and all these neurotransmitters are so used to being stimulated by the sugar that they end up actually going into a withdrawal state where they get agitated, they get cranky, they get, you know, not fun to be around. And it's similar to the type of withdrawal that people who you know smoke cigarettes will often describe where they're not physically life threatened by it, but it's just not fun and not a comfortable thing to go through.
0: Okay. So are there, what about if you, I mean, binging is, is, I mean, unfortunately I see quite a bit of that in my office and it's, it's really, really hard to manage, but, outside of that if somebody's not a cuz that's a pretty extreme it's it's really you know large quantities over a short period of time feeling guilty about it doing it in privacy uh you know uh, it's, it's very specific give us some more kind of uh, what are there are there other kind of more mainstream like i mean if people say god I, i'm addicted to sugar i don't think i could give it up like what would be what would be some warning signs
1: well you know one of the things that i think is the most clear-cut example, is the fact that people feel really compelled to eat sugar. It's the type of thing where even when somebody is full, maybe they just had a meal at a restaurant, if the server comes over and says, oh, well, would you like dessert? Suddenly, there's room for dessert. And suddenly, you have this hedonic desire to eat something sweet, even though you don't need the calories. And I think that the reason behind that, and we know that from our studies, Is that we've shown that sugar releases dopamine in the brain in a way that looks just like what happens when somebody's using a drug of abuse. So, if you take an image of someone's brain and they're eating sugar, and then you put next to it an image of someone who's using cocaine, the images are almost identical. And so, you can really get this strong activation in the brain when you use these substances. And that is what really compels people to eat it. And the issue that we have is that you know, it's more mainstream to have sugar and everything and have it be available. And so it's harder for people to resist it since the temptations are so much out there. So does everybody have these activations in the
0: brain? And then some people are just more susceptible to those trends. Like I, I love sugar. I don't think I'm addicted. Well, maybe borderline, but um, you know, is, what what's the difference between, I mean, because with drugs too, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I have experimented in the past in college and maybe early med school but um hope none of my professors are listening but um you know what 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 is what is different then between do does everybody's path do we all get the same pleasure from sugar more different lighting up and how does it transition into addiction
1: yeah it's a great question and it's sort of the same question that we have for you know why do some people become alcoholics but some people don't and why do some people you know use drugs now and then and they're okay and can manage it but other people can't and so there's a couple of different you know theories out there i think one of the things that we do know is that there is a genetic component to it and this has actually been found with food addiction and sugar in particular where people who have alleles of certain genes are going to be more likely to develop an addiction to food and it's interesting because it's the same gene alleles that have been identified In individuals who struggle with alcoholism. So there does seem to be this sort of genetic component to addiction that we see happening not only among, you know, drugs of abuse and alcohol use, but now we're seeing it also
0: in food. And that makes sense because it runs in families oftentimes. And, and even, you know, obesity running in families may actually be due to a, an addiction component versus like a cardiometabolic risk. I mean, you're speaking my language now because genetics is like nutrigenetics and nutrigenomics. So how our diet impacts our genes and vice versa, I think is fascinating. And I think, you know, understanding the but, and and not that it's just a, a weakness or because a, a lot of people are probably, especially when it comes to food. like this is because I see it. I feel like I can when a patient comes in and I'm listening to them talk. Um, and and it you're right, it is mainly with sugar, but is it is it with other is other foods as well? I mean, or is sugar really the biggest culprit by well, a landslide?
1: Yeah, sugar seems to stand out, but again, it's it's hard to say. What we've we've actually published a study on this a few years ago where we tried to figure out what was the common factor associated with foods that people identified as being addictive. And the thing that stood out as the largest positive predictor of something being an addictive food was how highly processed it was. Mm. And so interestingly, in that study, we found that the most addictive food that was identified was pizza. And if you think about it, you know, and I'm not talking about like the pizza you make at home where you're adding your own ingredients and whatnot. I'm talking about like fast food type pizza, like Domino's or something like that. And if you think about it, it's a highly processed product. Not only is the bread a processed product, but then we have the cheese and then the pasta sauce, which often has added sugar. And so it seems to be that sugar stands out as being something that people identify with as the taste that really drives them toward feeling addicted in many cases. but. The level of processing is also important. And interestingly enough, if you look at the number of processed foods that are out there, about 80% of them contain added sugar. So we're seeing an overlap between those two categories.
0: Yeah, that's that's fascinating to me because I mean, a lot of the work that I have been doing probably for the past decade, really focusing on, uh, the anti, uh, you know, uh, following an anti-inflammatory diet. And I think what we've also learned is that the ultra processed foods are really the biggest accelerators of aging and inflammation and, and it's hard. So, I mean, I, I try to tell my, and you know, I'm probably not going to get any food company sponsors anymore with this, but, um, whatever I'm willing to take one for the team, you guys, um, you know, is the, the, they they design these foods to be hyper palatable with, you know, multi-sensory different textures in the mouth, different food additives that, I mean, they design these foods to be addictive because that increases their bottom line. And I, I, I mean, So they're, they're feeding the addiction of this and something like, I think 58% of the food supply is highly processed, ultra processed. I mean, this is, it it seems like really people have a a, a losing battle. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard, right. To live in the real world. If you, if you're struggling with something like food addiction.
1: It is. And I, you know, when I lecture about this and, and talk about this topic, I often say, Know fortunately, we are aware as a society how dangerous it is to use drugs, so we don't have you know billboards with drug paraphernalia on them or you know vending machines with like crack in them because these things are just so dangerous. So, why would you ever have those things available? Make it you know more difficult for people to get a hold of them. That's the goal and with food it's the complete opposite i mean you can't go anywhere you can not even go on your laptop without getting bombarded with an ad for something that is really unhealthy for you let alone go anywhere in the public without you know having to be basically assaulted by food advertisements and the smells and just people offering it to you so it is a real uphill battle for people who are struggling and i often say to people that i work with in this area that you know, we really need to, I think, be more mindful about the struggles that people are coping with. It's not like, you know, alcoholism where you can, you know, tell everyone that you're an alcoholic is close to you and they'll respect that. And they're not going to offer you alcohol when it comes to sugar. People, you know, if you think about it, you've probably had people that you've worked with in your practice, Melina, where they will say, oh, I, you know, I feel like I'm addicted to sugar or food, but, you know, I keep getting it pushed on me. If I go to work, it's like somebody's birthday. So you have to have a piece of cake or you have to do this, you have to do that. So it is hard to live in the world like it is with um, the offerings that we have with all these sugar rich foods all the time.
0: Yeah. And you, so you wrote a really interesting book called, and it's going to be coming out in paperback next year, 2022. Well, if you're listening to this in 2022, it's out now, so go buy it, (laughs) but, but called why diets fail. And so talk to us a little bit about that and, and some kind of actionable Things and, and practical, because that's the name that, that people can take if if they feel like they're struggling with food addiction, whatever that means, however they define it in their own world. I mean, because that's at the end of the day, that's what matters. Right.
1: Right. Actually, it, that's the goal of the book is essentially to help people to understand the science behind food addiction And to know that it's not a moral failing, if you find that you're addicted to food, it's not because you don't have the willpower or you just, you know, don't have the ability to do it, it's because your brain is being changed by the food supply, essentially. And so in the book, I walk people through the research, and I also talk about how you can overcome it. Because just like other addictions and just like other hurdles in life, this is something we can overcome. It's not going to be easy, per se, but it is possible. And so one of the things that I really recommend people do is to, first of all, take stock of how much sugar they're actually eating. And it's really easy these days because there's so many apps available where you can log your food and many of them have sugar as a one of the features. So you can see exactly how much added sugar you're consuming. And you would be shocked if, you know, I've had people come to me and say, I'm already over the daily limit and I haven't even left my house. Right. I, all I had was breakfast, like help, what am I going to do? And so logging your food to get a sense of where the sugars are coming from is very important. And another big thing I recommend right off the bat is do not drink your sugar. Do not have sugar in liquid form. No sodas, no juices. There are just essentially sugar and water in those types of beverages. I'm all for people having, you know, fruits, but they should be blended as a smoothie. There should be some wholeness to that. Not like sit, literally just having like orange juice or apple juice. Cause that's really just the sugar right. with all the nutrients gone and the that's fiber. A good, gone. That's a good
0: point. And I'm going to add to those, the fancy coffee drinks too, but some of them have like four times more sugar than a Snickers bar. And you're just, you know, you're just leaving. You're having your morning coffee. That's it. And people are shocked when I, I literally will go online with patients and be like, let me go to the website of you, know who the chain that shall not be named and show you what is actually in what you're drinking with you, the, the benign chai latte that you're like, Oh, but it has spices in it. So I think that's a really good point. And I, I think the idea of journaling has been beneficial on so many different levels. So taking stock of, of your sugar intake and, and yes, the differentiator with fruit, because you know, a lot of the, big proponents of low carb diets and keto talk about that. But you know, when it's in the fruit matrix with all the nutrients in the fiber and it's a delayed absorption, delayed hormonal response, that's a whole different story. That's not what we're talking about in terms of you're not gonna be addicted to apples more than likely. I mean, maybe, maybe there's somebody out there that is, but good for you. You're probably doing pretty well if you're addicted to apples.
1: <laughs> yeah. I could think of worse problems to have than being addicted to apples. But yeah, I'm so glad that you made that point because I actually do get that question a fair amount, where people will say, "I'm addicted to sugar. Does that mean I should cut out eating fruit?" And my answer is always, "No, absolutely not. Fruit can become your dessert or your sweet treat. I mean, you don't have to, you know, give that up because it has so many advantages to it. And it's so good for our health, and it's part of a healthy diet. But you know, when I'm talking about sugar, we're thinking about you know the things that you can't." pluck from a tree or pull out of the ground. So it's really just these highly processed food products that have added sugars.
0: Yeah. And I love in the book, you you know, you have a, it's not just about food. Talk about some of the other lifestyle components of kind of, you know, why diets fail or dealing if there's an addiction component of it. So you, what, what else is, what else can we do from a lifestyle standpoint?
1: Well, there's a really big psychological component to this and to dieting in and of itself. And I talk in the book about how when people t- talk about going on a diet, they're essentially setting themselves up for failure right from the get-go because there's this whole idea that if you go on a diet, that you get to go off of a diet at some point. And that's really just not how it works. Right. You have to develop a mindset where you're saying, I'm doing this because I want it. To- be healthy for the rest of my life. And in order to do that, I have to make some behavioral changes that I'm going to continue for the rest of my life. And so it's really a shift in the way that you eat and it can't be viewed as a temporary thing. And I think, you know, so many of us and I get it, you know, want that quick fix. Like I just, you know, I want to look great in my bikini and I I totally understand that. Or, you know, from a medical standpoint, I just want my cholesterol to be lower so I don't have to take, you know, medication. I get it. Everybody wants to get there, but it has to be a sustainable behavior. And so I talk a lot in the book about ways in which you can manage cravings, ways in which you can talk about how you can you know, get out of social situations where you feel like you're being pressured to eat things that you don't want to. Um, and also even just when people just don't take you seriously. I've had so many people over the years complain about how you know they'll say that they're feeling like they're, you know, not in control and that they know they're overweight and they've been advised to lose weight. And they'll be told by friends and family, like, oh, stop, you look fine. You don't need to do anything. And, you know, people have a hard time responding to that. And it's it's something that I think others have good intentions, but it can be harmful to the person who really is struggling when they're trying to get some support.
0: Yeah, no, I think those are all great points. One of the things that I always say to patients, because they do always and they feel like uh, they're not on a diet unless they turn their lifestyle upside down and they're like, you know, whatever, 5 a.m. boot camp, this and that. I, I really try to, I mean, that's fine if they want to do it, be a little bit more strict in the early phases because research does show that, you know, your success in the first six weeks can predict future success. But as I'm working with them, I say, can you imagine yourself doing this in five years? And if not, why not? And let's figure out a, something that will get you the same results that you can still be doing in five years or 10 years, because the cholesterol problem is not going away. We're not going to fix your weight problem overnight. It's not going to go away. I have to pay attention to what I eat. I just have better tools to do it. But I think in the book too, you talk about, talk about the lack of sleep. And I think I, I it's something I struggle with a lot. I, I mean, I you know you have young kids too. I, I can't even blame my kids anymore. My youngest is seven, but But talk about the impact of sleep on, on, you know, sugar cravings and addiction and why that may be impairing people's success.
1: Yeah, it's really a holistic approach. I mean, when we think about nutrition, it's not just about what you eat. It's about how you sleep, how you stress, um, you know, just really how you care for yourself, whether or not you get enough exercise, all these things play a role in each other. And I think that if we can take a more holistic approach, it's really going to make a lot of changes in different areas of people's lives. The sleep piece, I can totally relate to it. I know I need to stop saying I have a baby because my baby's six <laughs> and I keep <laughs> saying it. But um, but yeah, the kids definitely add to the lack of sleep and the stress um, in good ways and in bad. But it is th- something that is really important because we know that if you don't get enough sleep, it releases more cortisol right? And cortisol is one of our hormones. It's supposed to rise and fall throughout the day. But if you are chronically sleep deprived, then you're going to have higher levels of cortisol. And one of the reactions that our body has when we're highly stressed and have high levels of cortisol is to store fat. And so it's going to be harder to lose weight if your cortisol levels are high. And so getting good night's sleep, getting restful sleep is very important to stabilizing those hormones, And also it's important just from a behavioral standpoint, because think about it. If you've ever had nights where you really didn't get a good sleep, I bet the next day you ate terrible, right? You just didn't eat healthy. You were going for the junk food. We have this sort of like innate drive in us where if we're tired and lethargic, we go toward those processed foods and toward those carbs. So it can derail your healthy eating habits and goals if you're sleep deprived. So definitely try to focus on sleep and making sure that you're getting you know, depending on your age, I say, just try to shoot for seven to eight hours. And that's really the ultimate goal. If you don't hit it every night, you don't hit it every night, but try on most nights to get that.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's good. And, and just with the cortisol thing, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's going to make you crave sugar because cortisol is the fight or flight hormone. And when you're running from a tiger, you need that sugar to run, but that is not how we're dealing with life. You know, most of us, in this country, I would say are not running from tigers. And so, you know, that, that is contributing and, and other hormones like ghrelin and even leptin can be affected by short sleep. So there's a lot of different reasons. I think that sleep hygiene, again, I feel like a hypocrite sometimes because my, I I struggle with this so much. And it's, it's one of the few lifestyle aspects that I just don't get right. I try really hard, but so uh, you know, that's, well, we'll just keep trying is the best thing. And, and at least I manage my sugar intake. And, and, and I also, one other trick that I say to patients is never eat sugar on an empty stomach. If you're going to have something, have it, like you said, as a dessert, because you, I, I what I tell people is that I can take away the um, scientific reason why you crave sugar. I can take away the drop in blood sugar, the, you know, try to manage your hormones better through better eating, uh, I can't take away the psychological reasons that you eat and the more hedonistic, like you talk about, for pleasure. Um, so I'm going to do, you know, not eating sugar on an empty stomach is is one of my little tricks because if you eat it on an empty stomach, your blood sugar is going to rise and then crash and then you're going to more likely to want sugar and it's going to be this kind of like, you know, vicious cycle. But, um, you know, I don't know if you have any other quick practical tips like that too because I'm always trying to give... Practical things to our viewers or listeners where they, you know, no matter where they are, they may be able to implement some of these things. So better sleep, definitely not eating sugar on an empty stomach, not drinking your sugar. Anything else that we should we could highlight?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that is so important that people get fearful of and I, I completely get it, too, is the exercise piece. And a lot of people think, you know, if you're not taking a class or like in the gym for two hours a day that you're not exercising and that's actually nowhere near the truth. You could be walking the dog for 40 minutes or, you know, if you live in a place where you maybe can't get outside that much, you know, do one of these millions of different quick little exercise videos that are on YouTube. I mean, it's just moving. It doesn't have to be any certain type of exercise. It's just a matter of moving your body. And I think that it can be so helpful in so many different ways. It can clear your mind. It can help with, you know, speeding up your metabolism. And especially lately where everybody's been so sedentary with the pandemic and whatnot, it's now more important than ever to make sure you're also getting that exercise component in as well. And I would add to that, um, you know, sitting less like that, that is a
0: really not even you don't even have to go for a walk, just get up and stand every 20, 30 minutes. I mean, there's so much research emerging from like highly sedentary behavior. And I think that all feeds into itself. But um, so speaking of the pandemic, I know you've, you've done a lot of work, you've published some papers on some of the, um, you know, behavioral addictions that have kind of come to the surface talk a little bit because I would I would, it makes sense to me why they would be uncovered, right? It's, it's a, uh, we've never been in a time like this. It's a, it's, it's scary. It it was scary. It was stressful, but talk a little bit about some of your, your work in that area.
1: Yeah. So some colleagues and I have published um, papers on this topic we refer to it as the unintended consequences of the COVID pandemic. And so, you know, what we've seen from the data is that there's been an uptick in gambling. There's been an uptick in obesity rates. There's been an uptick in drug overdoses. We had a record high drug overdose year, unfortunately, in 2020. And, you know, a lot of these things have come back to what's been going on in the world in terms of the stress that's associated with the pandemic. And so I think it's important that, you know, we consider that these are additional problems that we need to cope with as a society. And so I think it's important to be mindful of the fact that, you know, the stresses that have been going on in the world have really had a negative impact on people. And that's been manifesting in a variety of different ways, including increases in overeating and also increases in drug and alcohol use. I think that brings us to another,
0: you know, interesting point that is kind of you know, a hot topic right now is, is even just acknowledging mental health more and being more open, uh, in discussions about that. And I, so I think that's, you know, that's a big part of it is, is, you know, kind of even acknowledging that you have a problem and that there is, you know, addiction is, falls into the mental health category. And I think, you know, we're, we're starting to see people be more open about that and i hope i hope that's one of the positive things that continues from the
1: pandemic so you know because that's a big deal it is a big deal and i i hope so too i hope that there's more openness and acceptance of mental health challenges and you know i i think we're moving away from the stigma because we're realizing that we all have mental health challenges. I mean, everybody has anxiety. You have to have anxiety as a human, That's part of the way that we're di- designed. And so some people's anxiety is going to be more aggravated than others at different points. And some people are going to have more difficulty managing their anxiety than others, but just having anxiety is not inherently making you different than everybody else. And I think that the more that we can accept that, and it's not just about anxiety, but even depression, um, you know, these are things that are emotional responses that we have as humans. And some individuals just have them at different points in their life in a more exaggerated manner and require help and require medication in some cases. But I think if we can start to get on the same page with understanding that, I think there's going to be more acceptance and understanding and more people are going to be willing to come forward and ask for help and not be ashamed or feel like there's a stigma associated with it. And I think that's an important step.
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, I I think that's definitely true. And I I do, I see a lot of people, you know, that don't want to talk to their doctors and they end up self-medicating with food or alcohol or, and sugar certainly. And I know, you know, we all did that a little bit early on in the pandemic, you know, with the comfort foods, there's a reason that they call them comfort foods, you know, but in the short term, they really are comforting. It's just in the long term, they're not so good for us. And so, so if, if anybody out there is listening, I mean, I know you and I have talked a little bit about this, but, um, how, how would you suggest they figure out whether they should really seek help? For a food addiction, are there tools out there? We talk a little bit about the Yale Food Addiction Scale, which is something that you were involved with and and know the people. Um, what would you What would you recommend to our listeners?
1: Well, yeah. So in my book, Why Diets Fail, we have a copy of the Yale Food Addiction Scale, which is basically you know, a very short survey you can give yourself and it'll help you to understand whether or not you might meet the criteria for having a food addiction. And so that's certainly a first step people can take. But what I often tell people is if you think you have a problem, then you probably have a problem because if you're unhappy with your own behavior, then we got to fix that, right? So I think that if you're feeling like you might be falling into the camp of having food addiction, it's always a good idea to talk to your medical doctor. And, you know, it's become something that has become more mainstream. Like we talked about earlier in the show, 20 years ago, if you went to your primary and said, oh, I think I have a food addiction, they would have said, oh, would you do read that in a woman's magazine? Like, that's so silly. But now- physicians are trained in this and they're up to date on the research and they are knowing how to cope with it if a patient does present that way. So it is something that doctors can help with. And I would, I would
0: add to that too, though, because I'm, I'm not as optimistic about doctors being trained in this and being able, just being really listening to a patient. I don't even think we're there with nutrition. So, but, you know, I would say, if, you, if your doctor doesn't, then find another doctor. If they don't listen to you, if they don't acknowledge that something is causing you considerable stress and mental anxiety and discomfort whether or not it's a diagnosed addiction or not find a doctor who will listen to you because they're out there and there are there are healthcare practitioners that are trained i would assume to deal with this sort of stuff and and there are you know medications that you can take short term long term whatever it is and like you said it is not um a sign of weakness but you know i i think the there there are doctors out there who will listen, and if yours isn't one, go shopping, go doctor shopping. <laughs> yeah, I agree absolutely. Yeah, no. So I I think this has been this has been fascinating. I always like to end by kind of asking my guests kind of the most practically healthy ways that you implement in your own life. So it doesn't have to be perfect. That's the double entendre, right? It's it's practically not perfectly healthy, but it's also practical. So what do you, you have young kids, you're working, you're on TV, you're writing books. What do you, what do you
1: do that's uh, practically healthy? Well, so one thing that I've come to do, and I, I'm really happy and proud of myself for kind of s- discovering this. I don't know why I didn't think of this, you know, 15 years ago is that I will make an effort almost every day to walk and talk meaning i will either get together with a friend instead of meeting up for coffee we meet up on a trail and we walk and we talk and we catch up or you know if i'm on a, a call for work i put in my earbuds and I walk and I talk. And so I've just found that it's a great way to combine, you know, being productive with also getting exercise and burning off, you know, some extra calories that I maybe took in. And so I've tried, I try to incorporate that into my daily routine. You know, if it's something where I don't need to be on video, if it's an audio call, I'm walking while I'm doing it. There's no need to be sitting in this chair. Um, And I really just try to make the best use out of my time and try to, you know, Get double of the advantages out of it whenever I can. I love that. That I love
0: that so much. I, I think that's that's brilliant and and so meaningful and those small bouts of exercise or long or whatever it is and bringing in the social, they add up. I mean, the the non-exercise adaptive thermogenesis, the neat part, you know, where you don't have to be slogging away in the gym on a treadmill or lifting weights. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I think that's fantastic. Well, Dr. Nicole Vina, thank you so much. Where can people, where can people go to learn more about you and to uh, make sure that they get a paperback copy of your book?
1: Yeah. So if you go to my website, drnicoleavina.com, there's links to all kinds of stories about our research and our um, papers and books and different things that, you know, if you're interested in nutrition and the brain, you'll certainly find something there that you like. And um, if you want to follow me on social, I'm at drnicoleavina. Perfect. Okay. Well, we
0: love it. Well, thank you so much again for um, coming on today. This is this is fascinating stuff. I've been fascinated since I first met you, and I was an early adopter of uh, the idea of food addiction and that it was a real thing. And I, you know, I've been doing this for over 20 years too in nutrition. And you know, you 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 work with patients, and you just know. So I appreciate you bringing the science to it uh, and and helping you know uh, to educate the masses about it. So. It's- it's been, a, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. And uh, if you ever do any new research, uh, anything else interesting, please come back and, and share it with us because I love how you explain it, too. I think it's very accessible. So I'm very grateful.
1: Oh, absolutely. And thank you so much for the support. Thank
0: you. You've been listening to Practically Healthy by Dr. Molina. My guest today was Dr. Nicole Avina, author, TV personality, neuroscientist, and mom. Um, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast. I welcome any questions that you have, any topics that you'd love to see covered. I can even follow up my guest, with my guests if you like. So please stay in touch and uh, listen every week. Thanks.